Welcome back to the Wisconsin Law Reviews podcast, Forward. This week, our panelists will be discussing free speech in the First Amendment. This will also be the first week hosted by the newly elected senior online editor, Caroline Rogers. Hi, my name is Caroline Rogers, and I am the incoming senior online editor of the Wisconsin Law Review. I want to thank and welcome our panelists for today's discussion on free speech under the First Amendment. Professors Anuj Desai and David Schwartz teach courses on constitutional law at the University of Wisconsin Law School. I will give both panelists an opportunity to introduce themselves before posing questions about the basic legal understanding of free speech and how that may apply to social media. With that being said, let's hear from our panelists. Uh, My name is Anuj Desai, and I teach at the University of Wisconsin Law School, and I uh, teach First Amendment, cyber law, legislation and regulation, um, and a class called Intellectual Freedom, and um, Statutory Interpretation, and uh, that's about it. I'm David Schwartz. Um, I also teach at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Uh, I teach um, both courses in our um, general constitutional law sequence, Con Law 1 and 2. I also teach Civ Pro and Evidence. Thank you all so much for being here. So we'll get started with the basics of free speech and then go into more of a discussion about uh, modern media and social media. Um, So first, how would you explain the basics of free speech under the First Amendment to someone who doesn't have a background in constitutional law? Well, I would start by saying that you can't take the language of the First Amendment literally. The First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And two ways that that's not literal. First of all, it doesn't just apply to Congress, it applies to all uh, levels of government. But second of all, it's not quite true that they can make no law abridging the freedom of speech. They do that all the time in various ways. And what the Constitution, the way it's been interpreted and applied is to say that free speech is a fundamental right that requires a very strong justification in order to restrict it. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one one way you can think about it, um, uh, just along the lines of what Professor Schwartz was just saying is um, it regulates government. So, and it regulates government in all three branches of the government and at all levels of government. So the executive, the legislature, not just Congress, um, the judiciary, um, but also at the federal level, the state level, the municipal level. Um, But the flip side is, and we'll probably talk about this later, um, it does not regulate um, the actions of private parties. Um, And so, um, and that's, you know, I guess constitutional law 101 in general, the the so-called state action doctrine. Yeah, I definitely wanna get more into the private public distinction later on. Um, But, you know, given that it's the first amendment, as you said, Professor Schwartz, free expression is a fundamental right. What are the purposes of protecting free expression and why is it so highly valued? There's a couple of different theories at work. Maybe the traditional theory is that freedom of speech is an essential building block of democracy, um, and that if that we need to have people um, free to dissent from the government, to dissent from orthodoxy, in order to uh, evaluate the the behavior and the efficiency and the you know the goodness of government, uh, to be able to. Um, vote people out if uh, we're dissatisfied with that. But there are other theories that take a broader view and that's where that's where free speech kind of morphs into free expression. And um, that it has, some people say it has to do with protecting um, individual autonomy and, and development and self-fulfillment. And that, um, you know, a free and democratic society also places a value on those things. And, um, So, you know, we're concerned that uh, both to promote both of those things and they're connected, we want to have significant restrictions on on the power of the government to um, to restrict 
ideas and to, to say what ideas are permitted and what aren't. Yeah, let me just supplement. I think that's exactly right. Um, and then there's um, one other, you know, sort of big rationale that is often um, used, and this is the so-called argument from truth, um, which um, you know probably wasn't um, front and center with the with the founders, but has become um, really one of the primary arguments in favor of freedom of speech. And, um, and this is the argument that in essence, um, we have to allow for the flowering of different kinds of speech in order to, um, you know, to come to the truth. Um, and that without letting people um, express um, themselves, they will not come to the truth. Um, so that's, that's another big argument. And, um, and you'll often hear that um, framed through what's called the marketplace of ideas. Um, that is really the, you know, the fundamental, um, uh, how should I put it, uh, the, the, the sort of rhetorical, um, you know, cudgel that people use when they, when they talk about this argument from truth. Um, but there are also a lot of other arguments that are made. One is a so-called safety valve theory, this idea that if people get to talk, um, they um, won't act uh, in bad ways. So we, we let them say bad things um, in part to prevent them from doing bad things. Um, another theory um, that, um, that speech should be protected to sort of demonstrate that we are a tolerant society, that we are a, you know, a, a sophisticated enough society and a mature enough society that we can sort of take um, you know terrible speech and 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 um, and and not suffer any any consequences because of it and then there's there's sort of an economic theory this idea um, that derives from so-called public choice theory this idea that um, for most of us most of the time uh, when we speak, we do not get any personal benefit from it. Um, this may or may not be true, so you can decide whether you whether you whether you agree with these theories. But um, and that um, and that therefore speech falls into this category that the economists call a public good. Um, and if we don't protect it, uh, the public good will be undersupplied, so to speak, as the economists would say because um, it's not sufficiently um, valued, so to speak, in the, in the market. And so we need, to, we need to do something in the law to kind of overcompensate for that, for that undersupply. Great, thank you. So thinking about potential counter arguments to these um, justifications, what are some maybe potential drawbacks of just letting people speak freely, freely and when can speech be limited or regulated? You, do you want, why don't you uh, start? Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, the core idea, and I think you probably heard Professor Schwartz right at the very beginning uh, uh, sort of allude to this, is that speech causes harm. I mean, it's, that, it's really that simple. Um, you know, some of those harms are harms that we don't think ought to be cognizable under these various theories of speech, right? So if the government thinks, um, you, know, uh, you know, I'm a Democrat and I don't want people voting Republican, so I wanna suppress Republican speech, you know, that's a harm of sorts, right? If you're a Democrat, that's a harm. Uh, uh, but we sort of say, well, that's not a harm that gets to count. Um, but there's lots of other harms, right? I mean, and it, it probably doesn't take too much to sort of conjure up some of them. Um, you know, when terrorists conspire to, you know, blow up a building, a lot of the times, uh, you know, much of what they're doing falls into the category literally of speech. Uh, um, but, you know, we sort of say, well, that, that, that's going to cause harm. Um, you know, when people commit fraud, um, you know, and if we can, you know, we might want to talk about, um, you know, stuff online, but, you know, revenge porn, right? So somebody's ex, puts up, uh, you know, new pictures of the person, um, we sort of think, well, that seems like a harm, uh, uh, you know, directly from, from the speech. 
Um, you know, uh, so so you know that I think that's really the the sort of core. And there's a variety of different harms, some of which are you know, kind of directly speech related, and some of which um, aren't. Yeah, there's no doubt that a lot of harmful and tortious conduct takes the form of spoken words or written words. Another example would be defamation. Um, the, you know, one of the problems with the marketplace of ideas is, is market failure. And, uh, you know, we have a couple of things the, the assumption is that through a kind of invisible hand, and, and, I, and I think that the invisible hand mechanism in contrast to the invisible hand of the economic market is people's common sense and inherent rationality, uh, maybe their inherent goodness, um, that the best ideas will ultimately rise to the top. Uh, but, you know, we see that that's not always true. And that would be an example of a market failure in the marketplace of ideas. Uh, uh, we have some very smart commentators. Emily Azalon's article in the New York Times uh, recently says that our democracy is drowning in lies. And we now have, uh, you know, we saw in the, the, the recent election, and it's still going on, this lie, which seems like it's really part of the core of political speech, it's, it's speech about our political process, um, is based on a big lie that the election was stolen and is undermining our faith in elections, which is a, a potential threat to democracy. So, so that's a huge harm where, where speech is undermining its own rationale. Now, having said that, I mean, one thing that we have to really bear in mind here is that there's a lot, you know, um, the absence of free speech, it, it's, it's almost hard for Americans to really, to, to either to visualize or to appreciate at a gut level, life in a totalitarian society where, you know, without a first, without free speech protection, where the government dictates what can be said publicly, where people live in fear of expressing their, their thoughts and ideas, uh, where people live in fear of, uh, criticizing the government where people can't read or write what they, what they want to read and write. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, not having that kind of society is, of course, uh, at the core of the First Amendment. Um, but then when we get, when we think about these harms, the, I think the dialogue that we have in constitutional law is really kind of a grand slippery slope argument that, you know, in spite of you know, our really strong, vibrant free speech tradition, and, and in spite of the great freedom that we have to speak and listen to what we want, um, you know, if we empower the government to do any kind of regulation, we're going to you know, put ourselves on a slippery slope that will rapidly and inevitably lead to that totalitarian society. Um, you know, and so uh, you know, the United States takes a kind of a, a hardcore, I think, you know, our tradition is somewhat hardcore when it comes to the First Amendment because of that slippery slope logic, whereas other um, democratic countries um, in Europe, for example, um, are, are more permissive towards certain kinds of speech regulations that would not withstand constitutional scrutiny in the United States, and yet somehow their democracies seem to, to be doing okay. Yeah, I think so obviously, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I was going to kind of ask, you know, there's obviously a lot of different ideas and arguments about the extent of the protections of the First Amendment, but where do you think the value of uh, free speech in society um, maybe conflicts with the law or does it? Conflicts with what aspect of the law? Um, what speech is protected under the yeah constitutional law? Well, I, I think you know you're, you're going to get different people's uh, you know expressing different views views about that. I mean, I think as Professor Schwartz just mentioned, um, there are a lot of countries that take a less uh, however you want to think of it you know less permissive or more regulatory um, approach to certain kinds of speech on the basis of content, right? I mean, it will probably come as no surprise that Holocaust denial is illegal in Germany, um, and, um, but it's not in the United States. Um, and 
you know, we could have a, you know, sort of robust debate about whether that's good or that's not good. Um, um, so there, you know, that, that's, that's in the, you know, sort of broad context of, of speech. But there are lots of circumstances that are, um, you know, sort of specific to um, specific contexts. Um, so, you know, in, you know, since we're in a university, you know, in the educational context, um, the questions of, um, you know, related to sort of, you know, let's call it racist speech, right? Speech that might uh, implicate, um, you know, claims that somebody would make uh, that somebody that something saying is is racist, right? Here, you know, there are many people who um, would put that into the category of hate speech, right? Um, but we don't you know, in the law um, have a category of hate speech. Um, and, um, you know, and there are other countries where, you know, they try to delineate those kinds of things, um, you know, as to, you know, what is permitted and not permitted. I think it all boils down to the biggest tension, uh, Caroline, that you're asking about boils down to, I think a single, concept, which is that our doctrine of free speech protects speech that attacks the values of democracy. And we see that in a variety of ways, some of which Professor Desai has touched on. So um, our free speech doctrine protects advocacy of totalitarianism. It would protect, um, you know, as things stand now, it would protect um, you know, people writing and speaking and, ad and advocating, stopping short of incitement of violence and illegality, broadly advocating, um, let's, let's give up on democracy, let's stop having free elections, they don't work. I mean, people in the United States can say that. Um, uh, our, our democratic constitutional values um, favor diversity and inclusivity and oppose race discrimination, but under the First Amendment, um, hate speech, discriminatory speech, all those things are protected. And those two, um, you know, two problems. You know, it, you know it, uh, traditionally, and, and Professor Desai, I think, kind of mentioned that, we thought, well, our, you know, our democracy is so strong that we can tolerate these, you know, these attacks are just not really going to go anywhere. But we're starting to question that more now. Um, the, the attacks on the election being a perfect example leading to the, the storming of the Capitol. Now, arguably that was incitement and, and you know, at its farthest edge was not protected speech anymore when, uh, when uh, President Trump says, we're gonna march down to the Capitol and if it was clear that what he meant was, and we're going to you know, break in there and threaten people, that's not protected speech anymore. But um, a lot of the stuff whipping up that, um, those emotions was probably protected speech, even though it, not everything he said was protected. And then, you know, we have this this current debate on campus as well. Um, that um, you know, we have uh, um, you know groups that that are, that take positions that are inconsistent with our inclusive values, um, but somehow, you know, but we we feel compelled to protect them as a as a public institution. We are essentially an arm of the government, and the First Amendment applies to us. And we find ourselves in this extremely uncomfortable position at times of living with this tension um, where we're trying to you know, promote inclusivity. We're trying to enforce laws against um, harassment based on race and sex. So, so we have laws that say, you know, uh, we have to make sure that we don't have a hostile environment uh, for students because of race or sex discrimination. And yet on the other hand, the First Amendment says we have to tolerate speech that might actually be perceived as uh, creating that hostile environment. And the doctrines um, really um, at, some, at the edges come into direct conflict. And I don't know that we have clear cut resolutions of all of them. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that as Professor Schwartz was alluding, uh, you know, Caroline, the, the, the way in which we think about this, um, it is in fact actually much less um, you know, categorical and clear uh, than, um, you know, than, you know, even the sort of, you know, 
kind of libertarian approach um, that we were describing right at the beginning. Um, so as Professor Schwartz pointed out, um, we have laws that, um, that regulate certain kinds of environments. Um, the educational environment is one of them. The employment environment is another one um, where certain kinds of speech that is fully protected, absolutely positively fully protected by the First Amendment cannot be um, said in certain contexts. Right. So um, so you're fully, you know, permitted to go out in li on library mall and, you know, scream epithets uh, at, um, you know, um, you know, people of different race or people of different sex uh, when you're out on the street and 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 you can't be punished for that. Um, uh, but if you're in a classroom, um, you can be, um, or if you're in a workplace and, um, you know, and the courts say, it, uh, you know, amounts to a hostile workplace environment for somebody of that, um, that sex or, or race, um, um, then yeah, you can be sanctioned for that kind of thing, right? So, um, so the speech depends a lot on the context. It's not just uh, you know this is protected and therefore it's protected in all circumstances for you know for everybody. Um. That kind of leads me into my next question, which is you know as a law student, you very much want to have like a clear cut answer and a clear rule for everything, um, and that's obviously not always possible in the law and especially in um, constitutional law, but. Um, just to kind of situate us for moving into the discussion about social media, is there sort of a broad overview of what speech is protected and what speech is maybe the least protected? Maybe just a couple of examples that you could give us. You want to take that? I, I'm, ha I'm happy to take that. Um, sure, yeah, so Professor Schwartz mentioned earlier, I mean, there, there, there are categories, certain categories of speech that are not protected. So uh, as Professor Schwartz mentioned earlier, defamation. So a false statement that defames someone, a person, individual person, right? You, can, you can't defame a group, but uh, defames a, an individual person. Um, you know, if it's false and, as they say, defamatory, um, uh, that's unprotected, just absolutely unprotected. Um, obscenity, um, it, it's in 2021, it's hard to know what exactly falls into the category of obscenity, I will say, um, but, um, but it is at least theoretically a category of kind of sexually explicit speech that is, is not protected. Um, by the First Amendment. Um, incitement, you know, Professor Schwartz earlier was um, referring to um, the speech that President Trump gave on January 6th. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, you know, it's a difficult question about whether or not it constitutes incitement, but um, incitement um, is a category um, speech that, you know, advocates illegal action and um, is sort of intended to and is very likely to um, lead to that action in a very, 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 very short period of time, um, that kind of speech can be, um, can be prohibited. Um, you know, in general, you can't, you know, prohibit advocacy of illegal action. So if somebody wants to you know, advocate. I mean, if you just think about this, you know, much of the civil rights movement was built on advocacy of illegal action. So, so we, we probably don't want a, a system where, um, you know, people advocating for, you know, doing illegal things is, um, is, is, you know, prohibited, prohibitable. Um, but at the same time, um, if you, you know, if you get pretty close to, um, uh, in, in time to someone at, uh, doing something illegal, that, that's, you know, we call that incitement and that's, that, that, that can be prohibited. Um, I'm going to jump in, by the way, and uh, rely on my First Amendment rights here and academic freedom, which is a kind of protected, you know, special category of, of protected rights uh, within the First, within First Amendment doctrine. 
and say that if, um, if Donald Trump's January 6th speech was not incitement, then I don't know what is. That's my personal view. So you you have you have your first your your first 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 possible disagreement. I mean, I think I think that's I think there's a very good case for it. I guess is all I would say. Uh, I don't. I, I think it's. Uh, uh, I mean, some of it is a question of how, um, you know, sort of intentional, um, the, the how intentional President Trump's. Um, President Trump was about people committing illegal acts, right? And so, uh, um, and committing them, you know, now kind of thing, right? I mean, pretty soon. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, that there's nothing, uh, it's, a, there's a good case for it. There's a definitely a good case for it. So the, um, I want to add, so, so Professor Desai was talking about, you know, these traditional recognition of certain categories of speech that are unprotected. Um, they're, they're um, you know, they're exceptions to a general rule of protection of speech. But in addition, there, there are some justices who from time to time have tried to take a different approach. Um, most recently, Justice Breyer uh, saying that, you know, not all, not all speech, even if it falls out, even if it doesn't fall within an unprotected category, some speech is less valuable than others um, in the marketplace of ideas or less valuable to democracy. And, and therefore, while it may not be categorically unprotected, it should get less protection. And so they've advocated a sliding scale approach. And one example of that is falsity. Um, and the last, it's now almost 10 years, a case called United States versus Alvarez, um, the, uh, the a plurality of the court said that falsity is not unprotected per se. Um, but Justice Breyer in a concurring opinion said, but a lot of false statements or maybe even most false statements are low value and should get less protection than other forms of speech. Um, you know, so that, that category is not exactly off the table. And one thing I think that's true about constitutional law and it's true about the First Amendment is that um, when, when applying constitutional doctrine, courts have, um, or at least some justices and sometimes majorities of the courts have been responsive to practicalities and to, you know, the reality of um, a particular moment in history and so, you know, the, the sort of idealization of, you know, we're going to protect speech no matter, you know, how kind of threatening it is, may not always in all circumstances um, hold true. You know, the, the court's willingness to kind of allow regulation um, can, could conceivably vary with circumstances. Yeah, and, you know, just on this topic of kind of lesser protected speech, um, you know, there are plenty of justices who have um, said that sexually explicit speech, even sexually explicit speech that does not rise to the level of obscenity is, you know, just deserves less protection. Um, commercial advertising is, you know, viewed as the sort of classic example of, um, you know, getting less protection. Um, you know, it's speech, but, um, you know, but the the courts take a very different attitude towards, or have traditionally taken a pretty different attitude towards commercial advertising. Although, you know, there are a lot of justices who think, you know, that distinction too should not be, um, just shouldn't be there. But uh, the new gender current doctrine, that is, that's one, that is, that's one category where the court has formally recognized the lower level protection. Absolutely, right? absolutely, right. So right now that, that, is, that is current doctrine. Um, yeah, so I think that all of these kind of arguments and issues are definitely implicated when we think about technology expanding and now there's so much speech on the internet and on social media, but at the same time, social media platforms are run by private companies. So can you talk about, does the law provide any sort of free speech protection um, on social media platforms? So the, you know, the, um... The question is, 
complicated by the fact that we have two layers of potential speakers here. Um, you know, we have the platform itself, which is conveying messages. And then we have the people who are creating the content who are, you know, the users um, of these platforms. Um, and so, you know, it's not clear whether um, analogies to past situation in the past cases applies or not. And so let me give you an example. The classic case of New York Times versus Sullivan is somewhat, perhaps somewhat analogous. And so in that case, um, uh, civil rights groups took out a paid ad in the New York Times um, trying to raise money for Martin Luther King for his legal defense. This was in, uh, in 1964 um, and uh, laying out some facts and details of efforts to suppress the civil rights movement in Alabama. They got some of the facts wrong and some of that, you know, argue, allegedly damaged the reputation of uh, an elected official who was head of the police and fire departments in a town in Alabama. That's Sullivan. He brings a lawsuit. He sues the New York Times, which is, you know, presumably it's a deeper pocket. And I, and I suppose that there was a strategic decision as well that, you know, if they can win against the Times, they're really going to, you know, shut down these sort of liberal northern, you know, um, sort of, you uh, um, um, venues for speech. But New York Times is functioning somewhat as a social media platform in the sense that the, the New York Times itself did not create that content. It was the civil rights group that took out the ad. And so they just, um, they published the ad. Now, under traditional defamation doctrine, anyone who publishes um, a defamatory statement is jointly and severally liable. It doesn't matter whether they originated the statement or not. Um, so, you know, the civil rights group that took out the ad is analogous to somebody posting on Facebook. Um, but if it's defamatory, um, you know, if there are legal consequences from that statement, then under this sort of defamation analogy, the, um, the media entity that conveys that statement um, should be arguably in the same position. Now, to the extent that um, I believe, and Anuj can correct me if I'm wrong here, I think there may be some statutory protections for social media that are not constitutional protections that try to say, well, kind of give them uh, a free pass. We won't hold them liable um, for conveying these messages. And, if, and um, Anuj is nodding. So, and, and I think the policy behind that is, oh, well, social media platforms are this great thing and we don't want to deter Facebook and, you know, who, and Twitter and all these things from you know, um, acting as this kind of community public forum. And so they get some protection by statute, which could, you know, be taken away by repealing the statute. Um, so, uh, you know, so um, even, so, so it's possible that um, they could be subject to the same kinds of liabilities that might pertain to the, um, to the underlying speakers. I mean, there's a lot more to say about this, but I'll just sort of start that the discussion with that point. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Okay, um, so 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 one way to think about this um, along the lines of where Professor Schwartz was was sort of taking us is um, to think about um, how speech gets from a speaker to a listener or from a writer to a reader in, you know, put it in, put it in simple terms. And if you want to just sort of go back for a moment to, you know, the world before the internet, um, uh, I, I know that, you know, for, 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 for many of you that that, that that world never existed, but um, uh, you, you think about a book for a second, okay? So you've got an author, okay? The author writes the book. The author has an editor. Um, the editor also then works for a publisher the publisher then um, prints the book and publishes the book. Then what happens? The book has to go to a bookstore. The bookstore um, then sells the book and it goes to a reader. Sometimes the bookstore will sell the book to a library and the library will distribute the book to the reader, okay? So all the way along there, there are a bunch of different players from you know, writer to reader. And, you know, Professor Schwartz's example of the New York Times, exactly the same thing, right? You have this collective group of people who, you know, sign a statement, they go through the New York Times, and eventually it gets to 
gets to um, gets to a reader. Um, and every one of those people in between can be treated a certain way by the legal system. Um, and so traditionally the you know the, the, the distinction was between a publisher, you know, either a speaker slash publisher on the one hand and a distributor on the other hand. Um, and and I, I'm going to throw in one other entity that's going to kind of um, uh, you're going to you're going to kind of probably roll your eyes at my um, at, at the sort of you know almost anachronistic um, use here, but you'll see why in a second. Um, it's the it's the you know the post office um, or the telephone company. Um, so anytime somebody wants to distribute, you know, if we're in 1965 for a second, um, some kind of book or some kind of magazine or some, you know, the New York Times, how did the New York Times get to Alabama? It got to Alabama through the United States Postal Service. Um, and so each one of those entities had, falls into a different kind of category, but the law basically put them in kind of two to three different categories. One was sort of speaker publisher and as you know, Professor Schwartz laid out, the New York Times was definitely in that category. They were in the same category as the people who signed that statement. Um, and so they couldn't say, hey, we didn't write this thing um, in part because they fell into this category of the publisher. Um, but at the same time, you know, the newsstand, you know, or the, you know, the, you know, in those days it was probably a boy, but the, you know, the newsboy who delivered the New York Times, uh, you know, to somebody, whether in Alabama or New York or wherever it was, um, that person isn't held, held liable um, because that person is in the category of a distributor. Um, but what we had, um, and so this would apply to a, you know, newsstand or a library or anything in that kind of category, what we had was a sort of liability for these distributors, but the liability was much narrower. It was a liability based on a new or should have known standard. And what that meant is, so, you know, the New York Times is basically expected to know like every word that's in the New York Times and they're responsible for that. But the library can't possibly be, uh, or the newsstand or the, you know, the, the, the bookstore can't possibly be expected to know everything. But if they are selling a book that has defamation, that's defamatory, and you get a, you know, a, you know, a court order that says, you know, the, you know, this edition of the New York Times or this edition of this book is, um, is defaming me, then you can go into the bookstore and, you know, basically force them to take the books off the shelf of a library or bookstore or a newsstand or wherever, right? Um, and so there still was some liability. Um, and basically, as Professor Schwartz was alluding, what, um, what Congress did in 1996 was to say that internet service providers um, wouldn't even be liable at that level they were given such complete immunity that even if you tell them, right? So even if you go to a, a social media company and say, you know, you're hosting right now something that is explicitly defamatory to me or is obscenity or violates some other law, um, the social media company could do nothing or they could take it down or they, could, they can do whatever they want basically. Um, and the idea was at that time that, you know, the growth of the internet um, was a huge question and, um, and Congress really wanted to give free reign. And, and they also in particular didn't want to say, if you take something down, that's going to make you a publisher. Because if you take something down, you're doing some kind of curating, right? You're not you're not, you're not just a platform. You're not like the phone company or the post office where you're required to just send anything that comes your way, right? So, this, so some of these, it wasn't social media then, but these online service providers were doing was they were taking some stuff down because they wanted to be, you know, family friendly or they wanted to, you know, have some kind of marketing um, angle that said, this is the kind of stuff we do on our quote, platform. Um, and so, you know, what ended up happening is Congress said, we don't want it to be that you get treated like the New York Times, 
just because you're taking stuff down. And, um, and so, you know, you could see that the, 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 the underlying goal was good to sort of get this kind of diversity of different platforms, some of which would take stuff down, some of which would be more kind of libertarian about things. But, um, but now we're in a world where, um, you know, these big platforms, little platforms, you know, all sorts of stuff, they can basically do nothing uh, and allow everything and cannot be held liable for anything pretty well. I mean, I, I'm exaggerating slightly. I mean, there's, um, you know, copyright they can be held liable for, you know, there's a bunch of things, but, um, um, but for a lot of stuff they can. So yeah, there has been some recent discussion about possibly creating regulation. And um, recently, Justice Clarence Thomas um, stated that social media platforms could potentially be regulated like places of public accommodation. Um, so how would that change social media companies? And are there other sort of possibilities that other justices or people have talked about for regulation? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so there's two different things. So, so Justice Thomas, so this was a case um, in which it's actually now styled Biden versus the Knight Institute. Um, and uh, the reason it's styled Biden versus the Knight Institute, even though it was styled uh, in the lower court, it was styled the Knight Institute versus Trump, um, is that of course Trump is no longer president. Um, so this, is a, this was a case involving um, the Knight Institute. This is a, a First Amendment Institute at Columbia that um, was representing a number of um, people who wanted to comment on, um, I think it's the real Donald Trump um, uh, Twitter handle, right? Um, and as you know, you probably know, you know, Trump had 89 million or something like that um, uh, followers. But, you know, when there were followers, uh, you know, people who didn't, he didn't like, he, he wanted to kind of excise them and not allow them to comment on his, his tweets. Um, and so the Knight Institute said, hey, he's the president of the darn United States for crying out loud. Um, so this is what we call a public forum and is therefore subject to the First Amendment. And he can't pick and choose um, based on people's viewpoints who can, you know, retweet or post a, another tweet to his, on, you know, to comment on, on his tweets. Um, and, and the Second Circuit basically agreed. And, um, and then when the case got up to the Supreme Court, so uh, so, so Trump um, sought certiorari in the United States Supreme Court, um, and um, and the court um, it didn't, you know, the court didn't decide until after Trump lost and Biden became president, and um, and so the Supreme Court basically vacated uh, the Second Circuit's decision and um, um, basically as being moot because Trump is no longer the president and nobody really cares. But, um, but in doing that, um, what Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence to the decision, the sort of per curiam decision to vacate um, the Second Circuit's um, opinion and, um, and basically said, well, there's something weird going on here. And the thing that's weird is that, yeah, maybe it's a public forum because yes, Trump was sort of controlling it and Trump was a government official and it sort of has sort of aspects of it that are public forum. But at the same time, it's a little bit weird to think of it as a public forum if a private company can shut the whole thing down, right? I mean, so as you probably know, um, uh, uh, Trump was deplatformed from Twitter um, and, um, and so there's something a little bit weird if a private company is, you know, basically able to shut down the forum. Uh, there's something a little bit weird by calling it a government forum when, when it's the, you know, a private company that has the ultimate control. And, um, and so, so part of what he was trying to explore is how should we think about these, um, you know, very, very powerful private actors in you know, in the 
you know, we'll call it First Amendment speech, but, you know, space, but, you know, or free speech space in our society. Um, and one was along the lines of what you said as a public accommodation um, that, and he, he spent a little bit of time on the public accommodation, but, but, you know, the reality is right now our public accommodations laws are, you know, based on race, religion, you know, national origin, things of that sort of stuff, right? So if you're a public accommodation, you know, a motel or a restaurant or a, you know, retail establishment or something like that, um, you are, you know, subject to um, constraints based on certain characteristics. Um, but, um, uh, you know, as best I can, I, and I, I could be wrong here, but, I, you know, and so that's the Civil Rights Act, that's Title II of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? Um, but as best I know, I don't think it prohibits people from, uh, you know, if you're, it can be a public accommodation, I don't think it prohibits you based from, quote, discriminating on the basis of, you know, speech or viewpoint or anything like that, right? Um, so, I mean, of course, you know, maybe Congress could pass a law, an amendment to Title II of the Civil Rights Act and say, you know, if you're a public accommodation, um, you can't discriminate on the basis of viewpoint or, uh, or you know, uh, somebody's past uh, speech or anything like that. Um, but the, but the, the key is right now, there's, there's actually a split in the courts as to whether or not public accommodations laws requires a physical place, right? So whether or not, you know, Twitter could even count as, as, a, as being subject to public accommodations laws. Um, but that, you know, I guess I'll just say the more interesting thing that Justice Thomas raised um, and it gets back to this conversation we were having earlier about, um, you know, the different um, kind of parties in a, in a speech transaction, so to speak, from speaker to listener, um, was his um, speculation that we might want to think about them as what are called common carriers. So, you know, and, and this is probably obvious, but I'll just say it explicitly, right? The telephone company is viewed as a common carrier. Um, generally speaking, this sort of dates back to transportation, communication companies have all been what they call common carrier. And that is bigger than public accommodations. That is, you can't discriminate against anybody for any reason, okay? So when you talk on the phone, um, you know, let's say you have Verizon, you can spend your entire phone call uh, you know, saying Verizon sucks, I want TNT or whatever it is, you can say whatever, and they cannot prevent you from saying it. You can commit a bunch of crimes on Verizon and Verizon's not responsible for it, right? So that's the flip side of common carriage, right? You have to take all traffic, but the flip side is you're not responsible for anything, right? Um, and so that model, um, you know, is you know one of the models he threw out there, um, and that you know to be fair, right now, you know those social media companies they almost have this pure immunity, right? So maybe you know given given that we're giving them this almost pure immunity, maybe it's fair to say, well, then you got to take everything, right? You you can't you can't you know, you're just not allowed to prohibit anything. Um, but obviously most people don't want that, right? Because that really means they have to take everything. You, you have to allow crimes to be committed. You have to allow child pornography. You have to allow a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and, um, you know, and then the, you know, the, the authorities can go after the underlying people who are committing those crimes, but they can't go after the, after the intermediary, right? Um, so we're in a kind of a strange um, space uh, in terms of our constitutional politics. We, we've gotten really since the Reagan presidency launched, I think a revolution, uh, an unfinished partial one in deregulation. And a lot of that, you know, in the economy and a lot of that deregulation surrounded the uh, communications industry. And, you know, we have had, um, you know, a kind of a dominance on the Supreme Court since the Reagan years of conservative justices who are kind of take a hard line on 
libertarian approach to the First Amendment, and we've gotten so used to that that we've kind of forgotten about a more um, assertive regulatory history of the communications industry that existed before the 1980s that didn't raise these insuperable constitutional First Amendment objections that we now think exist. So what, um, and they were tailored to special characteristics of new communications industries. You know, newspapers, it was, it was, you know, we're a First Amendment zone because they just, you know, were smaller things uh, and there were lots of them and all kinds of, you know, viewpoints were expressed. Um, you know, the New York Times, uh, in, when in New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964 had a circulation of something like 700,000 in a population of 200 million. Today we have, you know, Facebook uh, probably can reach half of our 300 million people in a minute. You know, that's just the, the difference of degree that the difference of speed and circulation are just so incredible that it's really a different kind of thing. Well, television was a different kind of thing at one point. And television and radio uh, were, were, you know, major technological innovations of their day. And there was limited bandwidth. There was limited bandwidth on the radio and so even though it could reach huge numbers of people that could, you know, way more than could be reached by, um, uh, you know, a similar kind of thing. You could reach more people much faster than newspapers. And then television ramped that up. It was even more limited bandwidth. Remember, well, you won't remember this, but maybe your parents remember that there were, you know, when they were kids, there were like three channels or four channels. And so, you know, those could reach even more people very quickly, but very limited bandwidth. And in those instances, there were lots of regulations that don't seem, you know, that, that free speech hardliners today would say, gee, it's hard to imagine those. We had the Red Lion Doctrine, which required equal time for political messages on, on television. Um, and we had censorship by the Federal Communications Commission. In fact, I, I think the, the, the case, um, uh, in which George Carlin's uh, comedy routine, Seven Dirty Words, uh, was purged and, and banned from the airwaves, uh, you know, because he used the F word, though he was making jokes about it. Except and before 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. Yeah, and the court <laughs> upheld this because children could be listening to the radio. This is in the, the, the 1970s. That's still good law. And so in theory, there's no First Amendment reason why we can't say, look, these platforms are just very different from anything we've had before. And we're going to analogize them to uh, you know, it's bandwidth. There aren't that many platforms that can reach millions and millions of people in, in a matter of seconds. And so when you have these kind of you know, limited bandwidth or, or these kind of communication platforms that are, that are unique, um, that they, you know, special, the First Amendment should be able to tolerate special kind of regulations of them. So I wouldn't be surprised, you know, so Thomas is kind of floating some trial balloons in one direction, common carriers. I think there are some other uh, models and analogies that we have to draw on to regulate um, uh, uh, internet platforms. The problem is if that regulation starts to get into sort of, um, you know, uh, content regulation. You know, you can give this kind of speech, but not that kind. Um, you know, you can't have um, uh, extreme, you know, you know, the kinds of things that right-wing uh, terrorist groups like to talk about, you know, white supremacy. You can't have those messages because they're, you know, they'll be harmful to children or whatever. That's gonna be a tougher sell in this day and age. And, and here's the other kind of wrinkle. So we talk about regulating um, you know, Facebook and these platforms. But the other thing that's going on is we want Facebook and, and the platforms to regulate the speakers, you know, to do things that the government can't do. And, you know, and our hope is, oh, well, we hope that they're going to be good, you know, and think about the common good. And since they don't have First Amendment constraints, you know, we hope that they will, you know, control hate speech. And, and these messages that can lead to, to, to violence and, uh, you know, and, and kick Donald Trump off when he's, you know, threatening to undermine democracy on Twitter. Um, you know, so it's this kind of, right now we're a little bit 
you know, um, of two minds. You know, do we want to regulate, you know, the platforms, or do we want the platforms to regulate the speakers? And those things don't match up um, in a very clean and neat way. Yeah, I think that's right. And and you know the other the other um, just picking up on you know Professor Schwartz's last last comment. I mean the other thing to think about is that um, you know there are just huge numbers of platforms. And in you know if you think about something like Facebook um, and you actually look at their terms of service, um, they're way more restrictive on speech than uh, than the First Amendment would allow. Okay, I mean, so, you know, earlier in the conversation, we were talking, you know, I don't even remember Caroline, but you know, we were talking about like hate speech, right? You know, for example, right? Um, well, you know, Facebook says, we're just not gonna have that. We're just not, we, we just don't, we're just not gonna allow that, right? Um, and, um, you know, but if the government said that, you know, that would be it, right? That would clearly be a First Amendment, First Amendment problem. Um, and so, so, you know, these, the, you know, the section 230, the theory is that it allows for this variety of different platforms. But, you know, as Professor Schwartz pointed out, um, you know, right now in practice, um, we have, you know, a limited number of platforms um, that can really have that have that, that sort of reach. Um, you know, and the other thing that just, you know, might be worth um, kind of thinking about as you think about, you know, their speech or their rights is, you know, when Professor Schwartz mentioned, you know, they, you can reach in a minute, you know, whatever, you know, two thirds of the American public, um, that is exactly right. Um, but you can only do it because, um, or you can only do it with Facebook's, um, I, 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 we could call it permission if you want to call it permission, but um, uh, with Facebook's algorithm, right? So Facebook, so pretty well everything you see on Facebook on say your newsfeed um, is based on what Facebook knows about you. And Facebook decides what you're gonna see, right? And so, um, you know, thought of, you know, if you, you often we use the word platform, you know, we've sort of been in this conversation, right? Caroline, you know, we've sort of been using the, 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 the term platform, but they're definitely not a platform when, they're, when their algorithm is deciding, um, you know, who sees what and what stuff gets pushed to large numbers of people versus small numbers of people, right? Um, yeah, they're they're, they're AI, um, curators. They're curators, right, exactly, exactly. Um, and um, so, but it's a, you know, it's a really, I guess I'll just say it's a very, very tricky problem. Um, you know, in 2018, Congress passed a law and it was overwhelmingly supported, right? So 385 to 23 in the House and 97 to two, the only, the only senators who were opposed to it were Senator Wyden from Oregon and Senator Paul, Rand Paul from, from Kentucky. And, um, and what they did is they create an exception to the immunity for the laws that um, regulate sex trafficking. And you, you know, you probably think to yourself, who could be against that? I mean, who's, who's for sex trafficking, right? But what's the impact of that? Um, well, the impact is um, Craigslist no longer has a dating, a dating site, right? Um, why? Because, you know, before Craigslist could just take a totally hands-off approach, you know, to their, to their dating page, right? I, I, you know, just whatever, you know. Uh, uh, and now, um, you know, because Craigslist is quite a, you know, hands-off, I, I don't know if you ever use Craigslist, but, you know, basically you just post the thing up. It's just, uh, you know, their search function is just words. It's, there's nothing sophisticated about it at all. Um, but they don't want to go through every single city's, you know, uh, um, dating page to see if somebody's being sex trafficked, right? Um, and so they just said, you know, shut the whole thing down altogether, right? So that's uh, one of the costs of regulation. And of course, we have to ask whether our society is, is poorer because Craigslist doesn't have a dating site anymore. Um, you know, one of the things 
that that we have to think about is whether the, you know the nature of speech is dramatically different because of these huge changes in technology. Um, you know, the, um, among other things, um, you know, the internet, uh, and, and it, you don't have to go through. You know, apparently they don't go have to go through Facebook for this, but the internet has made it very uh, lowered the cost and made it much more feasible for um, people around the country to. Um, you know, to, to, to band together to create hate groups and possibly, um, you know, engage in, uh, in various kinds of uh, dangerous conspiracies. And, um, you know, in, <laughs> before the internet, they would never have had any way to get in touch. Um, you know, our, our democracy um, did okay when, uh, when, you know, people had basically a photocopy machine that was their way to reach a mass audience, but now we think it's, you know, our right under the First Amendment to be able to reach, you know, a million people, um, you, you know, with a, with a YouTube video um, instantaneously as soon as we post it, you know, if, if all goes well. Um, and, and so, you know, I wonder whether, um, whether the First Amendment just translates, you know, hook, line, and sinker from, um, you know, the pre-internet understandings to to the internet when um, the nature of communication is so different because of the speed and numbers of audience that can be reached um, so much more easily. I'm, I'm sure Professor Schwartz's YouTube videos do much better than mine. That's all I can say. Well, it looks like we are about up with the hour, um, so I want to be respectful of your all's time, but I really appreciate you coming to talk with us, and there's so many other things we could talk about um, with this topic, but um, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Take care.